So I think one of us one night, it's always hard to remember who said what, and I know you, f- you feel the same, I often hear that in interviews, but that's okay, uh, mentioned a little bit about the story of the Buddha's own awakening process. But I wanted to go more into it this evening because I think there's a lot uh, in that story that's really instructive for us, especially as practitioners of samatha, concentration practice. So the Buddha was born into a wealthy family. Some say he was a prince, a son of a king, but he was certainly wealthy. He certainly had a lot of um, central pleasures, luxury in his life growing up. But he left that life. He left his home in search of awakening because he saw, uh, and how it's, uh, you know, the, 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 the um, sort of archetypal story of it is that old age sickness and death were going to come to him as they would to everyone else, and he was terrified. So he wanted to find a way out. So he left his comfortable home and went off to find a teacher and teachings that would lead him to awakening. So he went to the famous teachers of the day, and they were teaching concentration practices, samadhi practices. He went to one and then another one, and for each each one, he mastered the teachings that they gave. And each one said, I've taught you everything I need to know, everything I know, uh, you know as much as me, come and sit next to me and teach. And the Buddha said to both of them, no, I, I see this is not enough. The states are blissful, but I come out of them. I think Philip referenced that last night. I come out of them. It's not the path to awakening. So then he tried the next avenue of practice that was was common at the time, and that was these very intense ascetic practices. And he did that for many years, um, basically not eating, living outdoors, living on, you know, just begging for food, just wearing rags. And he says of himself that, uh, you know, if, if he, he ate so little that if he touched his belly, he could feel his spine and his hair would just come out in his hands and his eyes were like sunken pools. He, he was the most extreme of the ascetic practitioners of the day. And he saw that also wasn't the way. He realized that starving the body or torturing the body, and the idea was if you tortured the body enough, the Atman, basically a, a kind of like a, a, an idea of the soul, would be released from this body and then join Brahma. There'd be this union in the, a divine realm, and that was the intention of the practice, but it didn't go there. It just suffered a lot. So he had this moment, this flash of grace or insight, where he realized, you know, this wasn't the way, it was just miserable and suffering. And he recalled when he was a young man, a very young, you could say a child almost, he was seven or ten or twelve years old, and the story is he recalled sitting under a rose apple tree in the springtime, watching his father, who was a king or a chieftain or something, doing a ceremonial plowing of the fields. So, you know, encouraging fertility. So the father was doing that, all all the villagers were probably around, there was some kind of celebratory Um, ritual going on, but this young boy was sitting under this rose apple tree in the shade on a cool spring afternoon, and he fell into absorption. His mind just became completely and profoundly still. And the Buddha-to-be remembered that. 
And something in that experience, he said, maybe that's the way, not this torturing of the body, maybe that bliss, that ease that I felt, maybe that's the way. And what's interesting about this part of the story is he didn't remember or recall the time with his two teachers where he practiced deep states of concentration all through the Arupa jhanas that Philip described briefly last night and even beyond that. He practiced all of those intensively. He didn't recall those experiences of concentration and say that was the way. He recalled this time as a young boy very fresh, open mind, wasn't practicing towards anything, sitting under this rose apple tree. What do you imagine were the qualities present in the mind and heart of that young boy under the rose apple tree when his mind just came to stillness, perfect and deep stillness? What do you, you can just call out, what do you think? Relaxation? Relaxation. Innocence? Safety, ease, contentment. Yes, you know, this just deep state of nothing to do, nowhere to go. He wasn't involved in the ceremony. He didn't have any responsibilities. And the mind just folded in on itself in this state of absorption. I think this is really instructive for us, that he didn't point to these deep states of concentration these qualities that you all just mentioned, or what he saw as, as possibly the way. So he realized he needed to take a different approach, and the first thing he needed to do was take some food. He was starving. And it said that this young woman, Sujata, from a neighboring village, saw him and somehow figured out that he would take some food or needed some food and offered him some milk rice. I've actually been on pilgrimage to India. There's a beautiful stupa celebrating Sujata and her gift of generosity that nourished the Buddha and enabled him to go on his path of awakening. And this is the words of the Buddha. So I took some solid food, some rice and porridge. Now five monks had been attending on me thinking and these are his fellow ascetics, if Gotama, our contemplative, achieves some higher state, he will tell us. He was already kind of a leader in his little group of these five ascetics. But when they saw me taking some solid food, some rice and porridge, they were disgusted and left me, thinking, Gotama the contemplative is living luxuriously. He has abandoned his exertion as in, and is backsliding into indulgence. This is just from taking one bowl of porridge. So they were pretty hardcore, these guys. But that was the um, turning point for the Buddha. He took some nourishment. He kept taking nourishment. He developed a sense of well-being, bringing that image, those memories of his time under the rose apple tree. And that was the, 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 the doorway, you know, and there's another whole section of his story, but I want this part is what I think is instructive for us as practitioners. And so he became enlightened. He sat eventually under the Bodhi tree, said, I am not getting up until I discover the end of suffering, uh, purify this mind and heart completely. And it happened for him. He had such great determination and had developed so many paramis, it said, over many lifetimes that that happened for him that night. As part of his awakening, it said that he developed 
omniscience where he could, you know, see in the distance, past and future, etc. And so he thought, who can I tell about my experience? Who can I share this with? So he thought of his two teachers of concentration, looked with his all-seeing eye and found they had just died that day or recently, couldn't tell them. So he thought, well, maybe I'll try these five ascetics that I was practicing with. And he again looked with his eye that is said to see all this, could see all this, and he realized they were in Sarnath, the deer park uh, near, near Savati, which was, I think, he was in Bodhgaya, they were um, near Varanasi, it was about 200 miles away. So he just set out, said, I'll walk there. It took him about six weeks, I think. Walked there, and it said when he came up to these five ascetics who were uh, keeping up their um, ascetic practices, they saw him, and he'd been eating, so he was, you know, I'm sure he was still thin, but he'd been eating, um, and they looked at him with disgust again. You know, I said, don't pay attention to him. Look at him. He's, you know, he's been eating. What, what, what on earth does he think he's been doing? But it said that they saw that the Buddha was glowing, that there was some radiance to his demeanor, and they couldn't turn away. And so they made a seat for him um, and sat and listened. And in that first teaching, one of the five uh, became a stream enterer, Kondanya, Kondanya knows. And with further teaching, all five became fully awakened from the Buddha. And what he taught them, and what's so important for us, what we're the beneficiaries even to today, are what he called the middle way. And that's the middle way between mortification or these ascetic practices and overindulgence or, uh, you know, going towards just sensual pleasures. He said neither of those are the way to enlightenment. And this theme or these practices of discerning between what's for our well-being, our contentment, what are wholesome pleasures that lead to um, freedom and liberation, and what are the kind of practices that are unskillful and lead to more suffering. This discernment is what he taught from that day on, and again, what we practice and teach today. So it was a discernment about that just suffering is not the way, overindulgence also not the way, but this sense of well-being and contentment is essential on this path and in the Buddha's teaching. And so he would talk about you know, the joy in the path, and even the, the simple joys of just being present and being mindful. And many people will describe that, that just being fully awake in the sense of fully mindful, there's a pleasure to that, there's a joy to that. And this theme has gone throughout the Buddha's teaching. And this capacity or this potential for, for mindfulness to being joy is now kind of seeping into our culture. As we've said, you know, mindfulness and everything, you know, stress reduction and in schools and prisons and business, etc. Also even found its way into who, a couple of people who, people's perhaps not the right word, um, I think uh, the sort of, my uh, go-to philosophers of the 21st century, Calvin and Hobbes, um, you probably know Calvin is a little boy. Hobbes is his imaginary tiger friend who's kind of sometimes the voice of reason and sometimes the voice of something else, but often the voice of reason. In this cartoon, few panels, they're climbing a tree, Calvin and Hobbes going higher and higher up into this tree. And Calvin is saying, 
I suppose the secret to happiness is learning to appreciate the moment. I, for example, take great pleasure in being right here, right now, doing exactly what we're doing, basically being mindful. Hobbes, the voice of reason, says, of course, you're meant to be in school. (laughs) Calvin says, I couldn't appreciate those moments. Often we have that idea, you know, we want to be mindful of, you know, when it's pleasing to us, right? But the practice is, can we find that contentment no, more, no matter what the conditions are? The opposite side of that is we can, through our Buddhist practice even, get the idea that life and or practice should be or is about suffering. And if we're not suffering, we're not serious, right? If we're not purifying... We get out the the whip or whatever. We're not purifying. We're not doing the work. It's not serious. And so we can often be also looking for what's wrong. Be on what I call pain patrol. You know, where's the next fire I need to put out? The next pain in the body? The next emotional arising? And you probably, if you've read any... um, the brain research, Rick Hansen, who teaches here a lot, was on our board for a long time. He says, the mind is like Velcro for difficult experiences and Teflon for good positive ones. The bad ones, they stick, we remember them, they impact us, we identify around them and something good happens or we have a, 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 a good mind state or a good experience and it's like Teflon. We just let it slip through our fingers, but we hold on to the difficult ones. We've got to remember that even though the Buddha did teach about suffering, the First Noble Truth says there is suffering. He never talked about suffering without talking about the end of suffering. They were two sides of the same coin. Suffering was a doorway to understand suffering leads to the end of suffering. The Buddha was actually called in his lifetime the happy one or the radiant one was often described as joyful or serene. And Venerable Analeo, this great scholar and practitioner who is, um, I think he's coming here somewhat soon, spring of next year perhaps, um, he says the entire scheme of the gradual training can be envisaged, envisaged as a progressive refinement of joy. Progressive refinement of joy. And he also says, after his awakening, the Buddha declared himself to be one who lived in happiness. This kind of happiness is not about chasing pleasure. He had tried that as a young man, and he saw that was not the way, didn't go where he wanted to go. But skillfully working with the difficulties that we experience, skillfully working with suffering, understanding and opening to suffering, actually allows true happiness to arise. A visiting king, again at the time of the Buddha, visiting a monastery, described the early Buddhist monks as smiling and cheerful, sincerely joyful and plainly delighting, living at ease and unruffled. This whole community with this sense of joy and contentment because they've done the work that the Buddha was teaching them to do. And in the Aranavibhanga Sutta, the Buddha said, one should not pursue sensual pleasure, which is low, vulgar, coarse, ignoble, and unbeneficial, and one should not pursue self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, and unbeneficial. The middle way 
discovered by the Tathagata, avoids both extremes, giving vision, giving knowledge, it leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. One should know how to define pleasure and knowing that one should pursue pleasure within oneself. So it's not, you know, a grim and unhappy path. There is this place for pleasure, but his definition, the Buddha's definition of pursuing pleasure within oneself was cultivating samadhi, basically cultivating the jhanas. So again from the suttas, here bhikkhus, and a bhikkhu is a serious practitioner, Quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, a bhikkhu enters and abides in the first jhana, the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana. This is called the bliss of renunciation, the bliss of seclusion, the bliss of peace, the bliss of enlightenment. I say of this kind of pleasure that it should be pursued, that it should be developed, that it should be cultivated, and that it should not be feared. So this encouragement from the Buddha, and again, if you read the text, the Pali Canon, the writings, the teachings of the Buddha as they've come down to us, the practice of jhana is all through the suttas, all through the descriptions of meditation. And so here we're perhaps, and maybe you've had this already, some other retreat or here, a taste of what he's pointing to the power and even the pleasure of a concentrated mind, of a mind that's collected and unified, not so roiled by the hindrances, not so disturbed. So we start to get a taste of what the Buddha was talking about. Unfortunately for us, for everyone, developing that kind of pleasure takes time, as we keep saying. It takes effort. It takes a lot of cultivation. Ten days, as we have here, relatively short in the scheme of things. The pleasures of the sense doors, however, for us these days, pretty accessible. Not so much here, though the food's pretty good, there's beauty all around, but, you know, we're used to being at home and we're a little bit peckish and off we are to the refrigerator and get out whatever it is that, you know, floats your boat or you just walking down a street, you can buy Almost anything these days. You have a piece of plastic in your wallet and out it comes and you get that thing that you think might do it. But we start to see that that's not the way, certainly to any kind of ultimate contentment or happiness, but even, you know, we really see through the lure of of that gratification and know that it doesn't do it really for us. But through our practice, especially this kind of practice, we can perhaps taste a mind that's collected, calm, undisturbed, the hindrances not so active, and really feel the seclusion of that, the the benefit of that, the well-being of that. So we we look for how to support that kind of well-being through our inner practice, the practice of meditation, of mindfulness, of concentration. And as I said, it can also be found and supported by the beauty of nature. This is another of the wholesome or blameless pleasures that the Buddha said can really support the opening of the mind. 
And many of you reported how beneficial it is to be in these beautiful surroundings, to be out in nature, to meditate in nature, to walk outdoors and just feel the the life, the beauty of what's offered here. And I think one of the reasons why nature really speaks to us, especially as meditators, is we can't get our credit card out and buy it, right? Some people maybe think they can, but not ultimately. It doesn't reflect back to us a sense of self. If you're walking in an urban environment, I talked the other night about the the stress that they've detected is just in walking through or being in an urban environment, often because there's so much stuff there. And we either have it or we don't, or we like it or we don't, or we want it or we don't want it. You know, window shopping, seeing stuff. Nature doesn't invoke that in us, so it invites the mind into stillness. It doesn't arouse so much a sense of self and, and invites us into calm and spaciousness, you know, that just the, the vastness of the vista out here, the mind just releases because it's pointing to that capacity, the inner, you know, the Tibetans talk about mingling the inner sky and the outer sky, the mind kind of reflecting that quiet and that spaciousness, that timelessness that we see in nature. And so nature can be a source of, of beauty, of inspiration, and there are many, you know, poems and utterances by enlightened people responding to nature. So I just pulled out one that I like, a, a haiku by Ryokan, that famous Zen um, practitioner, mystic and poet. The bamboo grove in front of my hut, every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. And I thought this was appropriate for us because every sitting, this breath, I see it a thousand times. Can you say that? Yet I never tire of it. That's what he's pointing to, the mind that can have this kind of freshness. And then from the time of the Buddha, there's a beautiful collection, actually two collections, one, the the Theragata, the verses of the elder monks, and the Terigata, verses of the elder nuns, often had um, nature imagery. And this is one from the Theragata. The color of blue dark clouds glistening, cooled with the waters of clear flowing streams, covered with ladybugs, these rocky crags refresh me. So just again, that nourishment and and, um, inspiration from the mind merging with nature and and resonating with what it offers, the clarity, the coolness, the glistening, the spaciousness. So this is a great support for our practice here. Again, in this process of inviting the mind into this place of contentment or ease, which is really the theme of the talk this evening. Most of the Buddha's teachings, and I've referenced a few this evening, were directed towards renunciates, his monks and nuns who had come to him and to other teachers and really committed to a life of practice. And they were very renunciate, take 200, 300 vows of simplicity, chastity, etc. But the Buddha also often spoke to lay people, and he talked about the importance of pleasure or skillful happiness 
for lay people, for people like us. And he, he gave many lists or teachings to lay people about happiness. This is a list about the sources of happiness for lay people. He talked about the happiness of possession, meaning it's okay to have stuff and to enjoy it. The happiness of enjoyment, the happiness of freedom from debt, and the happiness of blamelessness. That means acting ethically, living with or by the precepts that we took at the beginning of the retreat. And in another sutta, a lay person comes to the Buddha and and asks or says to him, Venerable Sir, we are lay people who enjoy sensual pleasures, dwelling at home in a bed crowded with children, enjoying fine sandalwood, wearing garlands and scents and unguents, accepting gold and silver. What will lead to our welfare and happiness both in this present life and in the future life as well? And the Buddha doesn't say, oh, you have to give up all that. You should become a monk or a nun or come, you know, give away all your possessions, live, be a homeless person. He says, these are the things that will bring you true happiness. Skillfulness in one's livelihood, so being able to take care of yourself and your loved ones, being careful with your savings, having wise and generous friends, and living in a balanced way, not extravagant and not miserly. But just, again, this kind of middle way, as is his advice. But even more importantly, he points this person to what will bring well-being and happiness in the future. And for that, he invites them into faith. And in the Buddhist context, it's faith in the Buddha Dharma Sangha, again, the refuges that we took. Moral discipline, again, living ethically, abiding by the precepts. Generosity, that this concept or practice of dana, of freely offering what you have to others, is central for happiness. But also, lastly and not least, wisdom. That each of us, even as lay practitioners, need to understand the truth of reality, the way things are. And the hallmark or classic teaching of that is to understand the three characteristics. And again, I think I said the Buddha love lists. I'm, you, you don't need to remember this, but a colloquial way of saying the three characteristics are that things aren't permanent, they're not perfect, and they're not personal. So it's to really live with that understanding as you um, live your life. So again, not saying, you know, you have to practice meditation or give up everything, but find these um, skillful ways to enjoy life, to have a balanced and happy life. Find these pleasures are available to you. If the mind is untroubled, if the mind is not living in a grasping, greedy way, all of these pleasures are appropriate and skillful pleasures for lay people. So for all of us here and and many people who come to Spirit Rock, we're kind of in an interesting middle ground. And I sometimes term us as lay renunciates because um, most of us have kind of seen through the story that's out there, you know, the one who dies with the most stuff wins, you know, not true. Uh, That stuff, more stuff, more money, not the way to happiness. Those people who are hell-bent on getting more and more and more, do you really think they're happy? Have you ever seen someone where they've said, I've got so much and now that's enough? Actually, some people do. There are some great examples where they've really 
taken that wealth and started giving it away. And it seems like to me they're much happier in that process than in the accumulating process. But for many people, they, they think that more stuff is better. And I think most of us have, have seen through that. And when we come on retreat, we're actually living like monastics. In some ways, the life we live here is simpler than a lot of monastics. I mean, monastics, they're just living their lives. They're watching television. They use their cell phones, which we are not doing here, right? We're not using our cell phones. Um, and we have a sincere interest in, in practice and waking up to whatever um, level we're uh, motivated to. Traditionally, and again, there's always exceptions, but traditionally it was the lay people practice sila and dana, ethical conduct and generosity. And basically the generosity was mainly supporting the monks and nuns, the monastery. It was like there was a cycle there. They got the teachings, they supported them, and they lived ethically. And that was considered a good lay life. But we're in the middle of this big experiment where as lay practitioners, we do this intensive meditation practice how do we then relate to the teachings about pleasure and renunciation that the Buddha offered? Each of us needs to explore this a little bit. You know? What's the wise relationship to this, to renunciation? Adrian mentioned this is the first of what she called the wise bitakas or wise intentions, right thought. Um, one of the path factors, renunciation is, one, is the first one. And so it's, it's a whole place for this very gentle but serious reflection on what's enough. What do we need to be happy? What, 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 what is conducive for our well-being? And so this is an exploration that's, for most of us, ongoing as we go through the different stages of life. What I see can happen, and I see it, can see it in myself at times, as as we practice, we get wiser, we learn this, that, you know, stuff isn't going to do it for us. We need to really cultivate and purify the heart and mind, develop wisdom and compassion. That's the way to happiness. But we can land in some kind of comfort zone where the big problems, you know, all of the angst, most of us came to practice because of a real sense of struggle and suffering. And we find this path really heals us perhaps even transforms us, offers this possibility for peace and ease. But then, then what? Then where do we go with our practice when we've found this kind of sense of well-being or ease? And, and this can come if you don't practice at all too. You know, it comes with age, right? You kind of figure stuff out. You solve a lot of the problems in relationship or work or livelihood or, um, you know, living situation. But then there's the now what? And we can be at this at any stage. Um, one teacher called this high-class samsara. You know, so we've, we're, we're living, you know, what some people would call a heaven realm, basically. But the heavenly messengers are right around the corner, if not right here, right now for all of us, old age, sickness, and death. These are the messengers that got the Buddha on his path. And they are... If they're not already knocking, they're not in the too distant future. And we never know when, what might happen. So how do we relate? We live in a culture of indulgence. 
You know, here in the Bay Area, you just have to read the food section of the newspaper and, you know, the latest fads and the hottest restaurant and what everyone's heading towards and food trucks and avocado toast or whatever it is. I could, you know, when I read that cafes were selling $4 pieces of toast, it's like, you can make that at home. You don't need to go pay someone to make a $4 piece of toast. Kind of amazing. I mean, a little while ago, there was this plethora of books about people moving to Italy or France and discovering, you know, La Dolce Vita, the good life. And I love Italy and France, places like that. They really do have a way of finding joy in life that's very um, heart-opening. But these books would just be, so, you'd be page after page, and all they were doing is finding the right tile or the most delicious olive or the best, you know, sip of wine. It's like... This is not what life is about, you know, finding the perfect olive and go somewhere else. So we've made different choices, right? I think most of us here have. But what does that lead to? What, it, what, what do we hold as the highest possible happiness for us that the Buddha keeps pointing to, that these practices point to? And we start to see that that happiness is out of contentment and out of well-being, and even out of a contentment that's cultivated through our inner experience, not so much dependent on conditions and stuff. This is radical, to actually find some well-being just in this mind and body as it is, and to find that it's actually more reliable than the constant chasing after you know, the latest whatever, gadget, iPhone, car, whatever it is your many people go after. So this is really important um, reflections for us, especially, as I said, practicing concentration. Many of you have done quite a bit of Vipassana practice, and you're used to the basic instructions there. If there's a hindrance... Make that the focus of your practice. Turn to it. Explore it. You know, basically, you could say, not a problem. The hindrance becomes the practice. How does it feel in the body? What are the thoughts, etc.? If there's something pleasant that happens, how many of you had a teacher say, oh, just note that, or let that go. It's impermanent. Don't get attached, you know. It's going to go. There's wisdom in that teaching, but... When we're practicing concentration, the guidelines actually are a little different, and we need to really get this. We've been saying this. If there's a hindrance, some difficulty, can we say, not now? Can we say or hold it in the background? Can we breathe with it or through it? And not so much be derailed by it or make it the focus. And of course, if we need to, as we've said, that is skillful. But the basic instruction is this steadiness with the simplicity of the practice. And if there are pleasant sensations, experiences that arise in this practice, invite them to expand. Again, this is the skillfulness, not grab a hold of them, because that doesn't work. But how do you nurture or nourish or um, inhabit, integrate 
those pleasant sensations, so they actually become a very known and felt and accessible part of our experience, these experiences of pity, or sukha, or calm, or collectedness. You know, I first remember when my, I reported some good, good experience, and my teacher said, do more of that. I'm like, really? You mean I can? And it's like, yes, skillfully, of course. If, and you all see, if you, you know, try to grab a hold of it or make it last in some rigid way, that doesn't work. But learning the skill of inviting or nurturing or, or supporting these um, beneficial, wholesome experiences is central. You know, that's why I, I referred the other night to these lists with all of these beautiful qualities that are present there of faith or rapture or joy or gladness or calm, tranquility. These are essential. They're all, every list, they're there somewhere as these kind of motivating, supporting factors that invite us in to deepening. So we need to be open to that, allow ourselves that. And again, it can feel like, you mean really? I can? It's okay? Again, not to grasp on or try to hold, because it doesn't work, that's more suffering, but to actually um, enjoy enjoy these experiences. I can remember when I had my first clear experience of sukha as a jhana factor. It was, you know, almost mind-blowing. My memory of it is I felt like, you know that long kelp that has a, it attaches to the bottom, could be 30, 40, just a long strand. I felt like a piece of kelp floating in a sea of warm honey because sukha has a sweetness. It sounds sweet, doesn't it? Sukha. And it was... What did I do with that? <laughs> oh, that's what I need, sukha. I, that's what's been missing all this time. Sukha, if only I'd known. I, you know, and if I got attached to it, I tried, you know, and that didn't work. I had to settle back, but just keep creating the conditions, doing the practice that invited sukha. And when it was there, really allow it to move through me and let that energy really flow. And so I could learn to use it skillfully to actually invite the concentration to deepen. So I said, in, often in the list, sukha is the proximate cause, as in the supporting factor, the preceding factor to concentration, as is mindfulness sometimes, as is tranquility. And again, as I said the other night, striving, effort, judgment are not. They are not on these lists. So this... Um, uh, willingness or interest or ability to open to these beautiful states when they're present and learning how to create the conditions for contentment. This was radical for me, that having a contented mind was what was supportive. I used to always treat meditation like medicine, you know, it's good for me, I'll do it, I'll take it and, you know, Go through, go through the difficult experiences because I knew it was good for me. It really was. But to actually work skillfully with our experiences, as Tanisaro Bhikkhu would say, who teaches um, jhana meditation, notice the disturbances, but let them go. I think I quoted Philip the other night. Don't be disturbed by the disturbances. In the beginning, our disturbances can be really gross, hard, difficult, the hindrances, we're pushed and pulled and sleepiness and restlessness, pain. 
over time, these disturbances can persist, but they get more subtle. And our practice has to get more subtle to actually meet them and realize what's happening. Um, And as I said, this talk about contentment isn't that we're trying to get perfect conditions. You know, don't disturb me, I'm meditating, I need the perfect temperature and no sound and no no this or no that. Remember my Ajahn Chah quote, you know, where he was stuffing his ears so he wouldn't hear. And you realize that's not the way. All we need are good enough conditions good enough conditions to support the mind and the body, food, you know, cushions, whatever, but good enough conditions. And then we find the capacity to find contentment wherever we are with the conditions that we have. And I spoke the other night about the value of simplicity or surrender. Again, allowing the mind to come more into rest, more into ease. To, do, to develop this kind of contentment in this practice, partic- particularly breath meditation practice, we need to make it appealing to come back to the breath. We can't get there by force of will. And if every time you lose track of the breath, lose the continuity, and you realize that and sort of wake up, and you beat yourself up, you can keep trying that, but let me tell you right here, it doesn't work. It doesn't work long term. You know, it's like the classic training the puppy. If every time you, the pu- you want the puppy to come back to you and it's wandering all around, but when it finally comes back, you beat it up, you know, bad puppy, you should have come back more quickly. One unhappy puppy who's not going to come back, right? Because, like, why should I come back and be beaten up? Every time, I, you know, mindfulness appears, we're like, you know, not good enough. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. I learned a lot about this necessity from uh, listening to Ajahn Brahm, Ajahn Brahma Wangso, who also teaches uh, jhana. That's his main practice that he teaches. He's an English monk who landed, sort of went as far away as you can go and landed in Perth, Australia, where he's got a thriving monastery and, and dharma scene. And he talked about, in one talk I listened to, um, his early years as a monk when he got interested in jhana meditation. And no one around was really interested. He was in the Ajahn Chah um, monastery where they were much more into kind of relaxed natural practice and just letting the mind unfold naturally. But he really wanted to do jhana. So he set himself on that task. You know, was, Eugene was saying this the other day, you know, um, hair on fire kind of practice. And he would do this. He, I forget what length of time he said, days, weeks, whatever, um, really with a lot of intensity. And he said, Every time, sooner or later, his mind would break. He couldn't keep it up. And so he'd just figure, I did something wrong. So he'd pick himself up, and he'd start, you know, I always imagine, like, huffing and puffing again. Like, get this engine going, huffing, striving, 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 crash. Okay, didn't try hard enough, hold on enough, do whatever. Try again. He did that so many times until he realized it wasn't going to work because he looked at what was happening and his basic relationship to the breath was that it was boring. And he had to be like, you know, this stern taskmaster, stay with the breath, stay with the breath, stay. He was beating himself up to stay with the breath and he saw that wouldn't work, it doesn't work. And he needed to change his perception of the breath. If you think the breath is boring, you are going to be bored. 
And, you know, can you invite yourself into resting if you're, you know, uh? No. So he talked about what he called subhasanya, beautiful perception, changing the perception of the breath, and beautiful breath. It's like we need to change our perception or our relationship to the breath to invite the mind to rest on the breath. It, it won't last, it won't stay there if we're forcing it, it certainly won't, nothing will happen if we're out here floating away. So we had to get interested in the breath, surrender to the breath. And what we find, if we get interested in something, it becomes interesting. If it becomes interesting, we get interested in it. And this whole feedback loop that can, ha- can happen... And so we, you know, we've been talking about the subtleties of the breath, vitaka vichara, the in-breath and the out-breath, and getting interested in that can invite us into a continuity of awareness. Um, the, you know, breath is life, like the breath of life. You're not breathing, nothing's happening, right? Appreciate this breath that's keeping you alive. You know, you can use the reflection. What what was the first breath like? What will my last breath? What if this was the last breath? How present would I be? You can even use imagery to invite this resting with the breath. Again, in Vipassana, we're always, let the breath be natural, be with the bare sensations, but here we want to invite this relationship with the breath. So if it's helpful, you know, and some people it just comes naturally, this kind of sense of the breath like silk or waves, or a breeze. You know, again, these nature imagery, swaying breath, circling breath. Even using the counting and the noting, these are skillful means to invite us into connection with the breath. So Tanisaro Bhikkhu will say, how can I make the breath more comfortable, more easy, more pleasant? And we literally have to fall in love with the breath for our attention to stay there enough to become absorbed. And by love, I don't mean, you know, can be that way, you know, a lot of bliss, etc. But it's like metta for the neutral person. If you've ever done that in metta practice, we go through these different categories. And one in this, we say, pick someone you have no relationship whatsoever. You kind of know them, but not really. And you just start wishing them well. And what happens? You get interested in them. Oh, how are they? I wonder how they're doing. And you start to care. You start to care, and then you can even start to love this person who you had no relationship with. It's a bit like that with the breath. How do we get interested in, start to care for, and you could say fall in love with the breath? All of these that I've just mentioned I call transitional objects or practices. They're like our training wheels. We use them as skillful means. They're really helpful. We can pick them up, but then we put them down because always the direction is to simplifying. Simplifying our perceptions and stilling the awareness of the breath. So that's the direction, but if, we, if these skillful means are, are helpful, then use them, use them. I remember, you know, I did a whole it was about 10 years where I mainly did concentration practices, did metta and the other Brahma Viharas all intensively for weeks at a time, and then Anapanasati. So it kind of explored the terrain a bit. And I was on one long retreat at the Forest Refuge, so it's a little bit like self-retreat. 
and I thought I would try doing kasina practice, which Philip mentioned very briefly. None of the teachers that I was with knew how to do it, so I just got out the Vasudhi Maga. This, if you've ever seen it, it's a huge book, and you know, it's not much instruction there, but a little bit. You're meant to make a disc, a color. Actually, I was told that blue kasina was a good doorway. There's, there's lots of different kasinas you can make or imagine, but someone said blue kasina. And so they encourage you to make a disc. And it can be made out of the earth, for earth element. For blue, they said blue flowers. Well, I was in IMS in November. There were no blue flowers to be had. So I got a blue zafu. And you know, there used to be a lot of those kind of powder blue zafus around. Um, This was not a new zafu. It had been through quite a few people sitting on it. So it was not pristine. But I thought, it's blue, it's a disc. And I tried to develop the blue casino with this safu. So I'd sit there, and the idea is you, you just let the attention rest there, just like we do on the breath, and that, but then when you close the eyes, you're able to completely reproduce that image or even fill your mind with that color and stabilize in that. So I tried that with this blue zafu, and it was not working. Because, I mean, it just wasn't inspiring. It wasn't inviting me into that kind of connection. So after a while, I realized it wasn't working, and I thought, what's the most beautiful blue that I know? And I thought, oh, the blue of a swimming pool on a summer's day, or a tropical water blue, you know? And so I just invited the, that imagery into my mind. And I can't say I perfected blue casino, but it was blissful. And I could, you know, hang out in there just by inviting that as a skillful means. So in concentration practice, we skillfully use this invitation into well-being and contentment. So helpful, so important. We're so used to thinking that trying harder is the way to get there, that striving or pushing or pressing. And it doesn't, you know, again and again, we talk about how it doesn't, is it? You know, and this striving can be really gross where we have kind of an agenda, an idea, I've heard of this experience and I want that. And we start to see it's just painful and in the way, doesn't help. I was going to say, unfortunately, I don't know whether, but you know, what happens is we realize that the striving gets more subtle. I was on a month-long retreat with Paok Sayadaw, who is a great teacher of, um, very experienced meditation master of the jhanas. And on, um, on this retreat, it was a month long, uh, I think I, did I mention already, the beginning sits were an hour and a half, that was kind of the beginning of the schedule, and it was pretty intensive. And you had interviews every day. And all Paok Sayadaw wanted to know was, how long can you be with the breath? And if you said 10 minutes, he said, try for 20. If you said 20 minutes, he tried, try for 30. And your interview would last as long as it took you to say that and him to say that. So about one minute until you got into his territory. But that was the bar. It was like, how long are you with the breath? Answer, response, okay. Every day. So there was, I felt, a little bit of pressure to have something to say. But... I had practiced concentration, I'd been teaching concentration, I knew you know, how much we needed to rest and relax, and I thought I was doing that. I thought that I was settled back, gentle with the breath, continuous in this you know, restful way, until one day, and I, you know, it was a number of days in, maybe a week or more, I just had the thought, 
I, or I just somehow saw clearly I was being with the breath in order for something to happen. So it was kind of subtle. I wasn't, you know, my physical experience, I could feel into it, you know, sitting still, comfortable. But that, as soon as that clarity, that insight hit, I'm being with the breath, just so I'll have something good to say to Parkside out tomorrow, which was true. I just saw how that rippled through my whole experience. And there was, you know, we call this this kind of gaining mind. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't strong, it wasn't leaning really forward. I didn't have some idea of what should happen. But that was enough. And it, I, I then could see this subtle tension throughout my whole body. And I had to just stop and start again, really open up. Go for, I went for a long walk and, you know, did move to whole body breathing and just got really spacious. And then, you know, was more sensitive to that striving and realized I can't control what my experience is going to be. I have to let the breath be the breath as it is, as it's manifesting, and just tend to it in this gentle way. You know, this is the, and they say in the Zen tradition, you sit just to sit. The, the, the means is the end. This is so instructive for us, this relaxation and ease. And so trusting the contentment, trusting the simplicity, trusting just being with the breath, not with a gaining mind. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's only a doorway to suffering. Keeping the mind contented, that it's okay to enjoy practice. We can't, you know, go chasing that, but when it's here, can we actually allow that? And find it through the simplest of experiences, the simplest of of um, attention to the breath, the simplest of a cup of tea. This is what's available for us. Keeping the mind contented, so valuable. So I want to just finish with the, the words of Tanasara Bhikkhu who talks about using the breath to find the sense of pleasure and contentment. He says, how do you use pleasure Focus on the breath right now and see how it feels. Then experiment with the breath to see how the way you breathe can produce either pleasure or pain. It may be subtle, the difference between the two, but it's there. We've learned to desensitize ourselves to this aspect of our experience. To begin... Uh, so it's going to take a while to resensitize ourselves, to begin seeing the patterns. This is why we practice. Keep coming back to the breath. Pleasure. Nature calling. This is why we practice. Keep coming back to the breath coming back to the breath. Try to get more sensitive to this area of your awareness, more skilled at learning how to maximize the potential for pleasure right here and now, simply with the breath, by the way you breathe. Not only producing pleasure, but also maintaining it. After all, feelings of pleasure and rapture are part of the path. They're tucked in the noble eightfold path under right concentration. And as part of the path, they have to be developed and maintained 
As the Buddha said, this pleasure is blameless. This pleasure is blameless. We can't grasp after it, strive after it. It's an invitation, a shifting of perceptions, a surrendering and a simplifying and trusting just this breath, just this moment, here and now. Let the coyotes fill the sound of silence as we sit for a moment. So that moment of silence, I don't know about you, for me it was interesting because I wanted the coyotes to cry again. It was like that would be so perfect. And they didn't. And that was a great teaching, right? Because I could see the wanting and then the, it's not going to happen. Let it go. Let it go. And rest. And enjoy the silence. So, great teaching for me at the end from nature. So we have time now for some invigorating or refreshing or calming or pleasurable walking before joining us for the last sit together with chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.